time to check in with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers for Legally Speaking. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. Always great to be here. Lots of interesting things on the agenda today. Indeed. Uh, first out of the gate uh, involves a, uh, was described by the court as a, a problem that arose from a, quote, short-term, later-in-life romantic relationship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so short-term, later-in-life, okay, okay. Romantic relationship. I, I'm hoping that if I wind up uh, in court, I don't wind up being described as later-in-life, but, no. you know, there, there it is. Uh, and it's actually a case out of Victoria. And the fact pattern of the case involved uh, a couple who's in the short-term later in life romantic relationship uh, who, after about three months of dating, uh, decided to buy a house together. Uh, and the uh, boyfriend in the relationship uh, made an offer. It was accepted. And then uh, they uh, agreed they were going to put the house in both of their names and they would both contribute to the down payment and the mortgage payments and all of those things, right? Both mm-hmm. people were financially stable. Uh, and able to do that. Well, things, of course, uh, don't always go as planned. The romantic relationship ended, uh, and the uh, girlfriend in the relationship never moved into the house and significantly never paid for anything. She mm-hmm. didn't provide uh, half of the down payment. She didn't make any mortgage payments. She didn't pay for any expenses, nothing. Um, her evidence at trial was she meant to, but was never asked. <laughs> but whatever the case, <laughs> she never paid. <laughs> I meant to help buy the house, but nobody asked me. Okay. Nobody asked Okay. Me. Okay. Oh, it's just what it's, you know, sometimes these things happen. Okay. Uh, and then uh, the uh, uh, boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, he lived in the house for several years, uh, and then uh, asked, uh, to, asked her to be removed from title, right? On the basis she wasn't living there, wasn't paying anything. Yeah. Uh, and she demanded money. She said, oh, I want, I think, originally $25,000, and I think it went up to $50,000 if uh, she, to be removed from title. She was listed as an owner of the house, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in B.C., we have the Land Title Act, and one of the concepts in the Land Title Act is this concept of indefeasible title. The idea is you can rely upon what's listed there to determine who owns a property, right? You don't need to worry about you know, looking at deeds or <laughs> trying to figure out who might uh, be the owner of a piece of property. That's the concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, off to court they went, uh, and she was claiming half the house, right? And probably that would be a considerable value. Of course, houses have all gone way up in price over the past uh, few years, right? Yeah. Uh, and so how do we sort that out? Well, to the rescue comes a concept some people may have heard of in a general way, which is the law of equity. Um, And the history of that uh, is it actually arose as a parallel court system in the United Kingdom. And there were courts there which were common law courts, and there were courts that used to be the English Court of Chancery. And they actually developed in parallel. Um, And the idea behind the common law is to provide um, some, you know, certainty in dealings, you know, what are the rules for a contract and this kind of thing. Yes. And, you know, make make future decisions in a fashion consistent with past decisions, that kind of thing. Yes. And the history of the Court of Chancery, it actually started out with sort of this equitable um, jurisdiction that the king would have that he eventually delegated to produce sort of fair results where the uh, common law result might be harsh or unfair. Hmm. And that's the origin of it. Uh, and it developed for many years, uh, and they sort of developed these two parallel systems of law. Uh, and they were eventually merged. Um, and then when the English legal system was adopted in Canada, we got that merged version of these two things. 
And it's from the law of equity that we have principles that people have probably heard of, things like uh, laws with respect to trusts or laws with respect to fiduciary duties, like an obligation to act in the interest of somebody else, or other things that sometimes you might have heard of, like equitable estoppel or subrogation. These are concepts that came out of the law of equity. Fascinating. And one of the principles that we have from that uh, is this uh, principle uh, where you can have what's called a resulting trust. And the idea there is that if you become a legal owner of something for no consideration, right? Like if I say to you, uh, can I put my car in your name? (laughs) the idea there would be that uh, you might be the legal owner of the thing, uh-huh. but you're not really the beneficial owner. You've got that for me. Hmm. One of the ways that often arises, and this is where there's like an express trust, would be in the context of, for example, uh, a will or when you have an executor. Yes. Right? Somebody dies, you might have a trust created in a will, uh, and the executor of the trust might be listed as the owner of property, the property, like the house or something, right? And if you went and looked in the land title office and say, who owns this property? It might be the name of the executor, right? But that person doesn't own it for their own benefit. They don't get it and get to like move into the house and sell it and run away with the money or something, right? They just own it, but for the benefit of, in that case, the beneficiaries of the will, right? They've got it to pay off the debts and follow the will and give it to whoever is the person that would receive it. Uh, and this concept of a resulting trust can arise even where you don't have expressly somebody say, I'm creating a trust, but it can arise, and it does arise uh, as a result of one of these equitable principles when a person receives something for no nothing in exchange. And when that happens, the person who receives something, if they want to try to claim, for example, oh, that was a gift, you meant to just give me the house, <laughs> right, or... Uh, whatever it might be, yeah. they would have the burden of showing that the plan was that it be gifted to them for free. Uh, and so that's the law that applied to this case to alleviate what would appear to be a very unfair result. Because I think most people looking at it would say it's just not fair that this person who paid nothing, contributed nothing, never lived there, didn't provide any down payment, didn't make any mortgage payments, essentially did nothing to contribute to the home, would get half of it, right? Sort yeah. of uh, Aha! That's great. The windfall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other concept that gets to that same thing is this concept of in, unjust enrichment. And that would arrive at the same result. And that's also an equitable, equitable principle. Hmm. And so what happened in this case at trial, and now just uh, the decision just came out upholding it on appeal yesterday, yeah. uh, was a finding that what happened here was when the girlfriend uh, got put on title for no contribution, no money, I meant to pay, but I just didn't. Um, what happened is she received it, the courts found, but in the capacity of somebody holding it in trust for the person who did pay for everything. Hmm. And so the court found that there was a resulting trust and that she only owned her share of it. Yes, as a matter of law, you can look it up and see, yet yeah, there she is in the land title office. Yeah. But that she only did so. Uh, as a, a person who held it in trust for the person who actually made all the payments, made the down payment, paid the monthly expenses, did all the upkeep. And so the result was that the court, using that equitable principle of a resulting trust, ordered uh, that the girlfriend who received the house for no contribution be required to transfer it uh, to the person who did pay for it all. 
Uh, and so that was the outcome of the case. And I must say, looking at it, it's one of the things which I think I commented on before that is really beautiful about our legal system. That is to say, legal principles that have developed over many years to achieve outcomes like this are generally in accordance with what a reasonable person would consider a fair outcome, right? You, you don't want a legal system that produces harsh results that most people look at and say, wow, yeah. <laughs> that was a totally unfair outcome. Boy, yeah. that person just got you know, taken advantage of. You don't want a legal system that does that. And happily, we don't have one. Uh, and one of the mechanisms for achieving what I think many people would view as a just or fair result uh, are these equitable principles that originally developed in England in the Court of Chancery that we've now, though that court was eventually integrated with the common law court system there, uh, and we inherited that, and judges here can apply both principles, right, and both systems. Yeah. And so um, that's how, uh, in this case and in other cases, it's possible to achieve a, uh, a just, equitable outcome uh, applying those principles like trust principles or unjust enrichment or things like that, even when if you just looked at the looked up the statute in the Land Title Act, you'd say, "Well, that's it. She she owns it. There's nothing more to be said about it, right? She's she's listed there on title." And so that's how, in this case, from Victoria, uh, the court was able to achieve an objective that I think most people an outcome that most people would say, "Yeah, that seems like what should happen there." Uh, you don't just get a a windfall because of uh, legal wording or something. So that's the outcome. Fascinating. Yeah. All right, we'll take a quick break here on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking will continue right after this. All right, back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan and Defense Lawyers. Michael, I saw something on the agenda that harkens back to an ongoing matter you and I have discussed any number of times. What is next? Yeah, next on the agenda involves uh, the continued prosecution of people for criminal contempt uh, coming from the Ferry Creek or Teal Cedar and described as the court as unknown persons operating as the, quote, rainforest flying squad, close yes. quote, <laughs> yep. uh, prosecutions. And so there was a decision uh, with respect to those prosecutions that just came out, which I think people should know about. And it was a decision in what's referred to as a screening application. Hmm. And the idea there is this. So in this case, uh, various of the some 400 people who are being prosecuted and some other people uh, were uh, applying for a stay of proceedings to stop uh, criminal prosecutions. Uh, and the basis for that, broadly speaking, would be allegations of police misconduct. Hmm. Uh, and so Crown Counsel, who was doing the prosecution of this uh, large group of people, and I must say, Boy, that's a large group of people to be uh, dealing with all at uh, all in parallel. Yes. Um, was uh, applying to ask the judge to not allow that application to proceed, hmm. um, and there is authority to do that. In fact, we have this concept the Supreme Court of Canada has endorsed uh, that courts can screen out applications that have no reasonable prospect of success. And the idea there is that courts have general authority to manage their process and they should try to keep things moving. And if there's some application being made that just is not going to go anywhere, right, has no reasonable prospect of success, they can just say, we're not hearing that, right? We're not going to spend two weeks arguing about, you know, whether uh, the vacuum cleaner made you do it or whether your tinfoil hat was somehow uh, defective, right? Yeah, it stops frivolous uh, litigation and whatnot, too. 
Yeah, that's their idea, right? But you have to use care when applying that principle because, of course, the law develops, right? And we don't want to try to screen out novel applications or new things somebody might try to argue. All of that is fine. But it's got to have some reasonable prospect of success. And so the Crown was arguing, hey, this just can't work, right? This argument that the police misconduct should result in these charges being stayed, that just can't work. It's never going to succeed, so you shouldn't hear it at all. And so the judge went through an analysis of whether that was so uh, and found, first of all, when you're doing that analysis, you have to uh, you assume that the facts being alleged uh, are all true. Right. And that the sort of the highest possible, uh, you know, highest and best uh, assessment of the argument would be established. Right. Okay. You know, the worst kind of police conduct, that kind of thing. Yeah. Sort of setting and a so, limit. OK, that makes sense. Yeah, sort of, well, you're alleging, you know, the police engaged in terrible, awful, really no good conduct, right, and you should get a stay. So you'd analyze that, okay, well, if you succeed in proving this terrible, awful, no good conduct that you're alleging, could that have that outcome, right? Mm. That's how you would analyze it. Or is there some reasonable prospect? And so it made that, it passed that test. Um, And in part of the, part of the analysis there, the judge applied is that, and this was good language, the judge said, well, these arguments have a, quote, toehold in the jurisprudence. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not sure I want to have my application described as having a toehold, but uh, it, it at least got to that threshold. Not got, a foothold, a toehold. I like oh, that. You've got a toehold. You're hanging in there. Uh, and the uh, the lawyers involved pointed to uh, the use of this doctrine of abuse of process, which can apply when there's very bad police conduct. One of the examples that they cited where charges were stayed uh, was a, a circumstance where uh, in an investigation, uh, police uh, pretended to be um, uh, gangsters, uh, undercover police officers pretended to be gangsters and threatened and intimidated the accused who then made some incriminating statement. And the court found that that amounted to an abuse of process and the court wasn't going to countenance a prosecution premised on the police um, you know, pretending to be gangsters and threatening somebody to making some incriminating statement and then prosecuting them. Hmm. And so he said, look, that's, that's your toehold. There is a principle of abusive process. And if you manage to prove these terrible, awful, no good things happen, maybe there's something there. So you can go ahead and try. But for at least a couple of the people involved, uh, and these were people who were arrested, uh, but not charged. And there were people who were arrested by the police, and then either the police didn't recommend contempt charges or the Crown didn't approve them. A couple of those people were involved in this thing, uh, and they were complaining that if they couldn't participate, they wouldn't be able to, quote, air their grievances, close quote. Hmm. Uh, and so for those people, the, the judge found that um, you just can't participate in this, right? This isn't some forum to air your grievances. No. You have no hope of success here. There's nothing you can argue. Uh, and so those people cannot participate in it. Uh, and so now the judges said, look, there'll have to be some decision about who's going to participate in this argument. Some people have counsel, some people don't. And so they'll be allowed to make their uh, make their argument, which is good, right? That's why we have a court system. Yeah. Uh, and uh, hopefully people are uh, not trying to undermine the court system, but appreciating that you have a court system which is prepared to, you know, give you a venue to make your argument, right? That's what we've got. We should be pretty proud of it. And you don't want to be undermining a court system, which this is yet another example of why it is, uh, why we're so fortunate to live where we live. That's not what happens in China or Russia or some other place you got a court system that says, look, you've got a novel argument to make. We'll hear you out. 
Um, and so uh, it's an example of a court trying to not have things that are totally frivolous, uh, but if you have some legitimate argument to make, let them make it. And so they'll have their opportunity to do that. And so that's how the uh, ongoing prosecution of so far 400 people is is carrying on. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll check in on that one from time to time as it moves forward as uh, fast as the justice system will allow. What else is on our agenda today? Next on the agenda is a case, an interesting one, I think, out of Vancouver that involves a place called Fett's Whiskey Kitchen. So that sounds like a kind of place I'd want to go for lunch. Uh, and it's a uh, uh, a place which uh, specializes in, amongst other things, selling uh, and serving uh, sort of high-end exotic scotch. And what happened here is in 2018, there was uh, a search uh, or raid, depending who you ask, of Fett's Whiskey <laughs> Kitchen. I'm sorry. Uh, where the... Laugh. <laughs> where the liquor, what do they call it now? The Liquor and Cannabis Regulation Branch, the branch, uh, went in and seized 242 bottles of Scotch whiskey valued at $40,000. Wow. And the reason for doing that is that there's a rule whereby if you're a restaurant, you've got to buy all of your liquor from the liquor distribution branch. And they alleged that the restaurant bought this um, whiskey from a private liquor store. And so that was the basis for the raids. And you can't buy it from a private liquor store. You must buy it from the liquor distribution branch, right? Uh, and so they took it. And then there was a hearing about that, right? And uh, eventually that matter wound up in court. Uh, and the issue was whether the um, liquor branch should have been allowed to conduct this search in this way. And the reason that was an issue is that under this legislative scheme, like other regulatory schemes we've got, there is often authority to conduct a search without getting a search warrant for sort of regulatory enforcement. Like, for example, you know, probably, although I haven't looked it up, probably the fire department could show up and inspect CFAX to make sure that you've got fire alarms and your Absolutely. fire pressure is charged up, right? Yep. Uh, but that's a different kind of a search than if the police are coming in to try to gather evidence to, you know, prosecute CFAX for some dastardly deed. You've got to get a warrant for that. Yes. And under the liquor legislation in BC, both things can be done. Interesting. You can have like an administrative fine imposed for something like, you know, hey, you didn't buy your liquor from the liquor distribution branch. Here they find them $3,000 and kept the whiskey, which is, of course, one of the other issues here. I wonder where it went. Um, yeah, it's probably in some government warehouse somewhere. Um, so the... Uh, they said, well, look, but under that same legislation, there's capacity to, for the same activity, prosecute people for which you can get a fine of up to $100,000 or go to jail for 12 months. Wow. And the restaurant argument was, well, look, you just came in and went straight to our 242 bottles of scotch whiskey and seized them. This wasn't just some inspection to say, oh, we're just going down our list, making sure everyone's got their, you know, fire equipment in order. This was a potentially... Uh, a sort of raid to t do a particular take a particular thing they knew about in advance and that could lead to a prosecution for which you could go to jail. You need a warrant. Yeah. Uh, and so what they were asking for is they said, hey, we want the documentation describing why you came here. <laughs> ah. Was this just a, an inspection or was this a raid for which we could have been prosecuted? What were you doing? Give us your paperwork. Uh, and the liquor branch refused and their adjudicators refused. And their argument was, well, if, if we had to give you that, it would be meaningless, our regulatory search powers. And the court said, no, no. You know, what's being asked for is they were asking for the re documentation so they could figure out 
what was going on here? Was yes. this some raid going for a particular thing for which you might have been prosecuted, or was this just an inspection uh, that turned up some, you know, bottles of whiskey that were purchased from the wrong store? Yeah. And so the judge has, or oh, this is also great. The they, they did get disclosure that Liquor Branch had uh, it named this particular operation. They called it Operation Malt Barley. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm not sure that's going to help them a whole lot. They didn't have legal counsel check that out before they named the operation. That's probably not a good idea. No, it's like if you're going in to, uh, you know, inspect the fire extinguishers or something, don't call it Operation you know, Fire Crackdown or Operation Mark Mart Barley. That probably is going to hurt you. Oh, that's funny. Get litigated. So uh, the result here is that the judge has ordered that uh, they turn over the documentation about Operation Mart Malt Barley. <laughs> yep. Uh, and the Fitz Whiskey Kitchen will get to look at the documentation and then go back and have a new hearing. And if there's a basis there to argue this was some raid with potential prosecution where they could be going to jail, they've got a legitimate argument. You should have got yeah. a search warrant. Yeah, uh, and so uh, that's where that is. Yeah, it's pretty bad when they say that something's found incidentally, and it wasn't the point of the inspection, but the operation is named after the thing they supposedly incidentally found. Not a good look. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not a good look. There was Mark Barley in there. You hadn't been here yet. <laughs> what were you doing? <laughs> Give it back. Oh, Michael Mulligan, a pleasure. A pleasure as always. Thank you for your time. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much. Talk to you then. All right, Michael Mulligan uh, with Mulligan Defense Lawyers every week.